We are wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. And these last two sayings that we're going to take a look at, these last two passages, are really his way of driving the point home and then putting a bow around it. And so we're seeing him take all the themes that he's been working on and putting them together here. Thanks, buddy. Um, the sermon, in case you missed the, the earlier uh, weeks of our study here, the sermon is actually kind of like the essential elements of all of Jesus' teaching. I remember the first book that I read on Thomas Merton was just called The Essential Merton. Have you ever read one of those kind of books? It's an anthology of all the writings that this particular editor found absolutely essential to this person's thought and, and, and whole concept. The Sermon on the Mount is the essential Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount are the essential thoughts, teachings, and, and concepts that Jesus was getting across his entire public ministry. And so this essential Jesus is what we're trying to understand right now. And at the end of things, where you're wrapping it up, is a good place to take a look at what Jesus thought the most essential thing was. And so what is this essence? You know, What is this essential Jesus? What is the central point that he is constantly driving home? And if you think about it, Jesus really is a Johnny One Note. He's only saying the same thing over and over again in as many different ways as he possibly can. And what he's talking about here is oneness, unity. Love understood as oneness and unity. And it was Thomas Burton who I think formulated it the best. He said, when we try to define love, we have to realize that love is not a feeling because you can have all sorts of feelings that you think are love but really aren't. And love is not a behavior because we can do loving behavior for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with love. What love really is is identification with the beloved. When we feel so connected to another that we literally lose where we end and they begin, then everything that we do to them and for them is as if we did it to ourselves because really they are acting in our spirit as an extension of ourselves. This is the oneness, this is the unity, this is the love that Jesus is proclaiming. This is the good news. If we don't get this, we're not going to get Jesus. We're going to come off with a completely different understanding of what he's all about. When he said, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He basically gave the sum of all the law and the prophets, which is code for, for Jews of that time. The law being the first five books, the Torah, and the prophets being everything that was written in that prophetic community over hundreds of years. And he said, to sum it up, you love God with your whole heart, your mind, and your soul, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And where he's coming from is Deuteronomy 6, the most famous prayer, the Shema, to the Jews. And then also Leviticus 19:18. So love God with everything that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, this is the sum of it all. It's all about love. It's all about unity. It's all about connection. You know, I thought it was interesting as I was studying all of this. The Shema um, for, the, for the Jews is their central prayer. Deuteronomy 6, 4, if you want to take a look. But in Hebrew, it's Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Which literally means, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And when the Jews recite this in Hebrew, they cover their eyes with their right hand. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Why do they do that? 
I don't know if you've ever seen that before. The reason is that they are trying to limit any distractions that would keep them from the basic fundamental truth, the fundamental reality of their God. But even more deeply than that, what is it that the eyes are being shielded from? When we look out at the world, what do we see? We see anything but unity, don't we? Anything but oneness. What we see is an explosion of diversity. We see an explosion of opinion. We see an explosion of adversarial relationship. Anything but unity. To shield the eyes from everything that would distract us from the fundamental truth of the universe and recite this prayer of God as one is what the Jews are trying to drive home to themselves over generations and centuries and millennia. And of course, Jesus comes from that tradition. And when asked to sum up the Law and the Prophets, what does he do? He goes right back to that central prayer that they knew so well. He would have covered his eyes and said, the Lord is one. That oneness is everything. That oneness is what he's trying to get us to understand. And so as he's summarizing this entire sermon, right, which probably wasn't delivered all in one place, but as he's trying to summarize the essence of his teaching, it's exactly the same. Think about it. How could it be different? The good news that he is proclaiming is that God is one and we are one with. And that changes everything. It's all about the oneness that functions as what we call love. Love understood most deeply most selflessly. And unity and oneness and love really is kind of the decoder key. Remember those decoder rings we used to get as kids? Some of us used to. I don't know if they have them anymore. The decoder key by which we can understand all of Jesus' teaching, all of Scripture, really. And if we lose that key, if for just a moment we lose the centering aspect of God's love and unity, we lose it all again. And this is the fundamental tug of war that we are doing as people, what we're playing at. It was there in Jesus' time. If anything, it's even more so now because of Western culture and the way we objectify everything. And so Jesus is trying to get us back. In chapter 7, which we are finishing up right now, the third and final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, he's been talking about judging and discerning. He starts off right off the bat. Do not do not judge, remember? But we talked about the fact, yeah, we're not supposed to judge, bring a preset standard in and judge people one size fits all because that never does anything except separate us. But we wanted to distinguish that from discernment because discernment is a conclusion we reach based on experience. If we have actually lived with someone closely enough that we have experience with them, now we're ready to discern what they're all about. We have to do that. So this distinction between judging and discerning, he talks about the stones and the loaves and the fish and the snake and how we have to discern what brings life and preserves it and what takes it away. Last week he was talking about trees, good trees and bad trees, ripe trees and unripe trees, right? Taba and Bisha. And that like breeds like. And so a good tree is going to bring forth good fruit, ripe fruit. And that's how we know between a good prophet, a good truth, or one that is not. It's by the fruits. Again, discernment. What is going on here? Jesus is trying to get us to understand that it's about function and effect over just outward forms. 
The religious leaders of Jesus' day and the religious leaders of ours, if we're really honest, are more about outward forms, about obeying law, about obeying the forms of righteousness, the things that we're supposed to do by a good ethical code, rather than allowing ourselves to be transformed from the inside out so that our behavior just automatically looks that way. Rather than obeying, we graduate obedience and we move into this other place. And it's all about the fruit. All about the fruit. Not just being legally righteous because of our actions and the forms that we adhere to, but looking at the results of those actions. What do they yield in our relationships? He's basically looking for a unity effect. He's looking at the total amount of unity, the total amount of oneness, I suppose the total amount of love that is reflected off our lives. Are you all familiar with the word albedo? (laughs) I know what you're thinking, not to be confused with libido. It's albedo, all right? Albedo is a total amount of reflectiveness of the Earth's surface. So when the sunlight hits it, how much is reflected back, you know? It's a scale between zero and one. Why did they do that between zero and one? You know, but as the earth gets lighter during ice ages, it reflects more sunlight and gets colder. And as it gets darker, that's why a nuclear winter is so de- devastating. It absorbs everything and it gets, it's, as it's darker. But albedo is a total reflectiveness. What Jesus is trying to get us to understand is that there's a spiritual albedo too. How much of God's unity, love, oneness are we reflecting in our lives that's how we know if we're on the path that's how we know if we're starting to get what jesus is trying to teach us this unity effect this spiritual albedo and so after redefining the law that he does in chapter five redefining righteousness that he does in chapter six and then redefining or at least discerning between judgment and discernment in chapter seven And taking all of those, law, codes of righteousness, and judgment, and looking them as an interior transformation from inside out that completely changes our DNA, rather than just obedience, rather than just conformance. This is what he's trying to get us to see. It's an interior transformational process not preset standards, not forms that we slavishly follow. And Jesus here at this point, what we're going to read is he's trying to bring that point completely home. Take a look at Matthew 7, starting at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Okay, so we're totally set up here to entirely miss the point. I mean, it's just the way it works. It works in human nature, but it also works in our culture even more so. It sounds like what Jesus is saying is that God's love is now conditional. His acceptance is conditional based on whether he knows us or not, based on this knowing. That without God's knowing of us, we will be denied heaven for all eternity on that day. That day, which we understand is final judgment, right? But we've got to set the context. When is all of this happening? 
What is this day that he's talking about here? Final judgment? The day of our own personal death? Now, most commentators, if you read commentators on this passage, believe that it is the final judgment. And that's natural for us as Christians to assume that because we're always focused on the next life. We're always focused on heaven. This life is just what we got to get through, get enough points that we can get to heaven, basically. It's a contractual kind of understanding. So if you have that lens when you're looking at this passage, that's exactly what you're going to see. But... If you think about the context of Jesus' teaching, he's talking about kingdom. And over and over, we define kingdom in here, not as heaven of the next life, but a quality of life that we can have right here and right now when we are living in that kind of connection, that oneness, that unity that Jesus is talking about, where we see ourselves as part of and everything that we see as part of ourselves. To live in that kind of awareness and presence changes things. And that is always now. Jews are all about now. Jews don't have a doctrine of the afterlife. And so their context is completely shifted. And so if it's all about now, on that day that Jesus speaks about in this passage, what does it refer to? Most simply, <laughs> you're get, he read ahead. Most simply, it refers to that day that the person cried, Lord, Lord. I mean, read the thing, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, that day, the day he's talking about, the day that someone cried out to God, that's the day he's most simply talking about. The day the person called out. Rabbi Eliezer, who is one of the most famous rabbis of the first and second century and uh, is most quoted, one of the most quoted in the Talmud and, and the Mishnah in, uh, in rabbinical uh, books. He had a great saying. He said, you all need to repent one day before your death. You get that? Repent one day before your death. And of course, the idea is if you don't know the day of your death and you don't, what day are you supposed to repent? Every single day. You live in a state of repentance because you don't know the day. If you don't know the day of something, it's always imminent, isn't it? It's always now. It's always now. That's the difference. We crave certainty, but as soon as we have certainty, as soon as we have a date, now there's now and then. But when you don't know the date, when you don't have the certainty, everything is now. And that's the beauty of living in the now. Every day should be a day of repentance, because we don't know that day. On that day, Jesus is talking about is every day. It's every day. This day, right now, and every following day. Now, am I right about this interpretation that flies in the face of all these, you know, long-standing Christian commentators? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But I'll tell you what I do know. I do know what this passage does not say. This passage does not say that God is going to make a final decision to cut any one of us off from his presence eternally over an issue that we may not even have understood. This petitioner here in, in the example that Jesus has given, given us doesn't understand what knowing means. Thought that they were doing everything that they were supposed to do. And yet God says, I didn't know you. Depart from me. 
Do you really think that God would damn any of us eternally over an issue that we didn't fully comprehend? See, this is where I came to decades ago and realized that there were questions that I couldn't fully answer. And there were streams that I was swimming in that seemed to go in the face of where everyone else was going. And I realized the only thing that I could do was to just drive a stake in the ground at the point of the Father's love and just drive it deeply into the ground at that point and then hang on for dear life and let scriptures like this blow in the wind if they had to. Because the alternative was to drive the stake in the ground at the point of the law and then God's love is blowing about in the wind and that is the kiss of death. Then we lose the thread of Jesus' teaching. Then we lose the good news. Now we're back on the hamster wheel trying to be good enough and never knowing if we ever are or ever can. To believe that this passage means that our God would deny his presence to us for all of eternity because we didn't pass a bar that we really didn't understand would violate everything about his nature as Jesus teaches it to us. It violates his oneness. It violates his sense of unity and love. Because the truth of the matter is, we can stay away from God. But God can't stay away from us. He is unity. He is love. That's who and what he is. And he will never change. Yesterday, today, and forever. But let's gather a little bit more evidence. At verse 21, he's talking about not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying it's not about a profession of faith. It's not about a profession of belief or loyalty. And it's not about adherence to principles. And it's certainly not about accomplishments. It's something other than that. Remember Paul? In Romans 10.9, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe and trust in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that sounds like we're right back again, this if-then kind of statement, right? But as you read the rest of the passage, Paul comes right back to this idea that when we are in this state where we will believe, and belief is always about trust, and we will actually profess with our mouth in public this new place we're at, it's because an internal transformation has taken place and there will be all sorts of other fruit. There will be all sorts of actions that will accompany this. It's not just about following a rule. It's still about this inward transformation. And the whole context of this statement makes that clear if that's the lens that you're looking through. You can miss it entirely otherwise. But this is what... Jesus is trying to get across. This is what Paul is trying to get across. This is what James is trying to get across. And we'll read James in just a second here. That it's not about professing or adhering. It's about doing the will of the Father. And that will in Aramaic, which means the desire, the delight, the deepest purpose. Not will in the way we normally think of it. So God's will is not a what. It's not an accomplishment. It's not a profession of faith. It's not an adherence to a principle. It's a how. And that how is living in the awareness of that oneness, of that unity, of that connection that is there under the surface of things. When we're living in that how, then any what that we do is right in the center of God's will. 
But when we're living in that how, it's going to change the decisions we make. It's going to change what we choose automatically. Don't have to think about it. Don't have to feel restricted by it. James calls it the law of liberty. Not a restriction, but a freeing because it's who we actually are. In verse 22, lest we misunderstand what Jesus means about doing the Father's will, what does he say? You know, Lord, we're not going to, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons and perform many miracles? No, it's not about that. It's not about spectacular deeds. It's not about prophecy and casting out demons and doing miracles. In fact, what Jesus is saying here implicitly is that deeds and words in themselves mean nothing. Outward forms do not preserve life in and of themselves if they're coming from the outside in. But if they're coming from the inside out, then it's completely different. But that's because we are different. In verse 23, he says, I never knew you. The word there in Aramaic is yada. And we've talked about this before. Yada is not a mental knowing. It's not an understanding. It's not cognitive. It has to do with intimate experience over a period of time. It has to do with being able to feel something in your hands like a carpenter knows the weight of the hammer or the musician knows the instrument the way a lover knows his or hers beloved's face. It's like that. It's that kind of knowing that he's talking about. And only intimacy can unite us with each other. It has to be that way. When the Father says in this, or the Lord says in this passage, depart from me, obviously that sounds like a final judgment. But what's really going on here, if you're looking, I don't know if it is on the ones that are up on the screens, um, certainly in your handouts, they're all in caps. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Whenever you see something all in caps like that, if it's Lord, it means that it's referring to the yod heh vav heh the Tetragrammaton, the, the Yahweh, or Yehovah. Lord is transliterating that. But if anything else like this is in all caps, it's because it's a direct quote from the Old Testament. And so this is a direct quote from the Old Testament. In this case, this is David speaking in Psalm 6, verse 8. David is grieving at this point. If you know the story of David, there was a point where his life was just a mess. Everybody was after him, and he was hiding out in caves and trying not to be killed by Saul and his minions and so on and so forth. And Dave is just calling out to God and grieving over the state. And in this passage, he says, Depart from me, all you who are practicing iniquity, obviously against me. And so what is he doing there? Well, if you read the rest of the psalm, here's the most interesting point. He says, depart from me, all you who are practicing iniquity. But he's praying to God at the same time. And he says, because of God's intervention in his life, these people who are attacking him stop and feel ashamed at their deeds. And they turn back and go away. So we've got to be clear here. If something is being quoted from the Old Testament, Jesus is bringing that entire context to bear on what he's saying now. And the intent of depart from me is not to damn somebody for all eternity. The intent of depart from me is see the error of your ways and repent. Change directions. Because God is always drawing us. That is God's nature. 
as unity itself, there's nothing else that God can do. That's the intent. Stop the action, the direction that you're on. See what's going on here. Feel that shame. Feel that guilt as a motivator to turn and go someplace else. This is a call to repentance. And those who practice lawlessness. First time I looked that up in the Aramaic lexicon was a, was a shock because the first, <laughs> the first definition was a child or a suckling infant. I think, what in the world? I think I got the wrong citation here. And then I look a little further down, and then it's saying a colt, infant horse, right? I mean, okay, what's going on here? And then I got for a little further down, and then it was lawlessness, iniquity, or even evil. And those are three different words, but only the vowels are changing. The consonants, which actually form the written word, are exactly the same. What does that tell us? When words share the same root in a Semitic language, which is a root and pattern system, it means that they share meaning along that whole vertical tree. And what is it telling us? It's telling us that the similarity between a suckling infant, a young horse, and someone who's practicing lawlessness is that they are immature. They are not yet ready to do what they were designed to do they are unripe. They are bisha, right? That's what God is getting across here. That's what Jesus is getting across here. Those who are in this state that God still doesn't know is because they're not ready to know God. They're not there yet. They're not capable yet. They're immature. They're unformed. They're unripe. In Luke 1 and 2, he uses the same word for both John and Jesus as infants. This same word, Aula. And that's the thing that we need to take away. God is not sending people away. The idiomatic way that Hebrews speak is always that God is the actor because they saw God as the source and the first cause of everything that happened. Just because it happened, God did it. God sanctioned it just because it happened and for no other reason. But we have to read between the lines here and realize that, yes, we are the actors in our relationship with God, because God has already acted. God has already chosen. So reading beyond the idiom, we realize that these people are unable to see the difference between accomplishments, between outward forms, and true presence, which really comes down to fearless vulnerability, fearless intimacy. They are unable to enter kingdom. That's what's going on here. Jesus is talking about actually experiencing God's presence enough to know his nature, to know the love. And to experience that love, to experience that oneness changes us, casts out the fear that keeps us separate, keeps us in competition, keeps us defended. Because as long as we're defended and the walls are up, we cannot connect. Jesus is calling us to become integrated in unity with God, both inside and out, that our beliefs and our convictions are exactly the same as our actions, the fruit, the effect that we have on those around us. This unity is so important. This integrity is so important to Jesus. His harshest words were always for those whom he called hypocrites, who are the opposite of this. Those who knowingly 
knew that there was a difference between their beliefs and what they were doing. And he calls them out on it. I want to read you just a little bit from Matthew 23. See if this sounds like the Jesus loves me of your youth. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is Matthew 23, 13, if you want to put it up. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. The gnat was the smallest unclean animal. They would put muslin over their cups to strain out any possibility that they would swallow a gnat and yet they're swallowing the camels, these huge things that they were doing that were hurting the people immensely. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Wow. Wouldn't want to be on the other side of that tirade. But here's the truth. There really are few actual hypocrites among us, few actual charlatans and hypocrites among us as the people that he was calling out this particular day. People who knowingly, absolutely know that what they are selling, what they are putting out there, has nothing to do with what they believe. They're doing it for their own advancement. They're doing it for their own advantage. There's very few of those people who are that cynical and that predatory. Most of us are just doing the best we can with what tools we got to work with today. That's really what it comes down to. And many of us are misinformed. We've been taught wrong. You know, not just by church, but by parents and family and media and society. We just don't really know what we don't know. We're undiscerning. We're not able to make the kind of distinctions that Jesus is talking about. We're unripe. We're just not ready. But even though we don't have the guilt of knowingly doing the damage we're doing, we're still doing the damage, and it still keeps us from knowing God intimately the way Jesus is talking about And this is where James comes in. Let's take a look at James. Chapter 2, verse 14. This is where he's talking to the earliest followers of Jesus. Would have been probably just a few years after the crucifixion. But already things were going southward in these little communities. He says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? 
Integrity, right? Can that faith save him? If a sister or a brother is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. He's talking about integrity here that we have been transformed by what we say we believe and what we trust so that what flows out of us automatically looks like love. But I think that it comes even clearer if we read it from the message version. And I don't know if John can put the message up there, but just listen if not. This is the paraphrase by Peterson. Same passage. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words, but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, good morning, friend, be clothed in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, sounds good. You take care of the faith department. I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith fit together hand in glove. Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God, but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that. But what good does it do them? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hand? The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works, and you get the same thing. A corpse. These are strong words. He's spanking the church here. He's coming down on them. He's trying to slap them out of the smug complacency that they had obviously fallen into. These epistles are like a Jeopardy game. We always get the answers and not the questions. We don't know what engendered this particular response, but we can imagine. They've fallen into. He's trying to say, your faith is not like a club. You pay the entry fee, and now you can just sit there, and you're all done once you're in. It's not like that. You need to reintegrate. You need to make sure that the fruits are there, that what naturally is flowing out of you because of the interior transformation looks like the love of Christ, looks like Jesus. To see how it is all one, thoughts, action, relationship, God can have one without the other. This is the way this works. And so the question becomes, How do we become one thing? How do we become integrated this way, inside and out, being exactly the same? Just like God, 
everything integrated, everything one thing. Knowing God, how do we do that? We do that by practicing one thing. What is that? The presence. The practice of presence. Building awareness to the point that we can be present in our moments. Actually living out God's will, God's pleasure, his delight, his deepest purpose. Everything that just naturally emanates from God. This unity, this oneness that we're talking about. When we are present, we are in that oneness. We are experiencing that oneness. Remember Brother Lawrence, the practice of the presence of God? He was all about that. He was trying to show us that we don't need to have separate things that we do to come at God. We just do the things that we do all day long. But for the love of God, with the awareness that God's presence is there, he said, I can pick up a straw off the ground, but if I do it for God's love, it's a sacred act. This is where we're coming here. Building awareness to see the connection of ourselves to everyone and everything else. To keep our thoughts on the thing that we're actually doing. And when we realize that they have wandered off, to bring them back. When our emotions are triggered and take us out, we recognize those and bring ourselves back to the thing that we're doing, the person that we're with. Immersing ourselves in this moment. Because when we do this one thing, and we keep doing it, and we get better and better at it, and we pass the 51% mark, and now we are changed, our character is changed. We are now living in kingdom more often than not. Then God's truth and God's nature becomes firm to the touch. We actually can touch it. We know that it's real, and it convinces us and convicts us. And it changes us from the inside out. How do we know that we're actually practicing this one thing? Use the fruit, Luke. It's all about the fruit. Jesus keeps bringing that back. It's about that spiritual albedo. What is the total reflection of oneness and unity in your life? In other words, what are the relationships, and especially the closest ones, not the ones half a world away, but the ones in your own home, the one whose toothbrush is next to yours. What's that relationship like? What's all the relationships like? Are they connected? Are they healthy? Are they loving? Or are they unmanageable? This is how you know. Jesus said, don't worry about anything else. Do the one thing and focus on the fruit, and it will lead you like a laser-guided missile to where you really want to go. I have a, I know we're running short on time, a couple more things and we're done. A, uh, a letter by a friend that I think brings this all home. And he's actually a, uh, a Jew, a converted Jew, who is following Jesus as best as his community can from a first century point of view. So they, they, they follow kosher, they follow all the dietary laws, they're fully non-rabbinical, but Jewish but following Jesus at the same time. And he wrote this. He says, I don't go out to proselytize, but if I'm asked about the ideals of my faith, I answer as best I can to show them the goals of people of faith without being forceful or dogmatic. I try to be positive and speak about the common human ideals, kindness, compassion, understanding, forgiveness, acceptance. And this is what he typically gets back. Well, then, if those are the ideals, religion isn't working, is it? <laughs> Why are so many 
So-called religious people, so obnoxious? Good question. And you know, when you consider how most decent religions have high ideals, and then you meet their followers, and they're no better than anyone else, these are good questions, aren't they? Yeshua must have had the same kind of frustration when he said, why do you call me master, and yet do nothing that I say? Human beings claim to follow a particular religion, but they actually don't. They use their religious faith as a label, as a badge to say, this is my team, this is who I fight for. If someone enters a religion and after some time continues being the same person they were before, then their new faith is merely a label. What they actually follow are their own set of opinions based on their own personality. An argumentative person remains an argumentative person. A bully will become a missionizer. A bitter cynic will look at the most depressing aspects of their faith. An unhappy person will look forward to leaving this life. And a selfish person will do just the bare minimum expected of them. Yeshua said, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and everything else will be given to you as well. When we enter the mindset of the kingdom, we are meant to be changed we are meant to become different people. When we are faced with the same, with the passion and immediacy of God's kingdom, and we are confronted by the challenges of the kingdom, we cannot fail to be moved, to see the need to become instruments of God's active presence in human history. We are supposed to evolve into human beings who rely less on conflict and more on understanding. The argumentative person is challenged to listen to that still, small voice. The bully is challenged by God's love for the weakest in society. The cynic is challenged by witnessing the awesome hope that God gives to those who have nothing. The unhappiest person is challenged by the terminally ill who lives their lives to the full. And the selfish person is challenged by the selflessness of the poor who share what little they have with strangers. When we let Yahweh enter our hearts and allow his presence to transform us, Yahweh gives us the ideal to live by. And with Yahweh's help, we work our way over a lifetime towards that. God created our souls with a perfect standard. And in the course of our lives, as part of our spiritual journey, we try to regain that perfection, regardless of how often we fail. Your enemy will become your friend. New opportunities will open to you. The powerful presence of Yahweh becomes a tangible reality. New insights and wisdom will be yours. And you even begin to tread on the threshold of the doorway between heaven and earth. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and everything else will be given to you as well. Believe me, I tell you, it will. If we follow this path, we will see changes occurring in us as we go. If we just continue to do that one thing, to practice that presence, we will notice that we have changed over time. Not so much in real time, but we'll notice that we have changed, and others will notice the change in us. If we just keep showing up to connection, to presence, if we will just seek first the kingdom, Everything else will be added after that. There's one little thing, this little box on your inserts if you've got them. 
This is my best attempt to try to describe what Jesus is talking about here in terms of knowing God. To know God is to know truth. To know truth is to trust God. To trust God is to be set free. To be set free is to fear not. To fear not is to feel perfect love. To feel perfect love is to enter kingdom, and to enter kingdom is to know God. God, truth, trust, liberty, perfect love, kingdom, they're all the same thing. They are all God. And experiencing these only comes through the presence and the awareness that we build as we intentionally and consciously follow this way of Jesus. That is the knowing. That is the yada of God that Jesus is talking about. And a final thought. Some of you may be run. Some of you may be right. Some of you may be fish. Whether you're running or riding or fishing, Jesus is asking you and every one of us, do you do that for fitness? Do you run for fitness? Do you write for grades or accolades? Do you fish for food? Is everything that you do focused on the outcome, focused on reward, focused on accomplishment? Or do you just love to run and write and fish? Until you just love doing what God does. Just love without defense, with a vulnerability that doesn't make you catatonic with fear, willing to take yourself into that position. Until we can do that, until we just love being in that position with each other, we will never know God, no matter how much we profess our faith in God. But you can take heart because that day is every day. And God is infinitely patient and it's never too late to start again. That's the good news. Let's pray. Father, we're here. We're here this morning. We are showing up. We are trying to show up more and more for you. Help us to put away all of the fears and all the crazy thoughts that we think, all the the wondering and the uncertainty, and just show up. Just get ourselves out the door and show up on the doorstep of another and lose ourselves in the exchange, whatever it happens to be. Help us to learn to just love small talk, to love all the insignificant things that we do with each other as an expression of the deepest truths that you have for us, the simple connection and the intimacy with another person, the sharing of our time and our lives. Help us to focus there first. Seek that first and see how you shower everything else on us, Lord. Help us to do more of that. Help us to relax and enjoy the ride. And thank you, Father, for everything you give us along the way. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, his Shem, his essence, his character. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's all stand.